I looked and behold, the heavens were opened. A ninth season. <laughs> we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the five solas. We believe in the doctrines of grace. A lot of the time, people are asking the wrong questions. They're not asking the questions like, do I understand God's grace? Do I understand the cross? have our own ministry. It doesn't matter if you work as a CEO or you work at McDonald's or whatever you do, or whether you're quote unquote in ministry, you have a ministry. As we mature, we walk, we, we enjoy our relationship with God in as much as we see his majesty in the blessings that we have just by what Yeshua has done for us, not by what we have done to impress God and then get something from him. So faith, but, so, so salvation by faith. Absolutely. Salvation by faith. I keep zeroing in on these, you know, the big ideas. Like, what is biblical love? You know, what is what is grace? Do I have an accurate understanding of God's grace? Our love for Yeshua, but His love, like through us, is why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why it's called Messiah Matters. Wednesday. Uh, what day is it? <laughs> it's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. 10th. This is Messiah Matters number 396. Lots of thunder outside. In fact, my internet keeps going in and out. Hope we'll have a good stream. My name is Caleb Pegg. And hoping that we have a good show. I'm Rob <laughs> Good. Yes. <laughs> Getting better bad. at that. I forgot to turn my phone off. So uh, if uh, everybody heard that, sorry about that. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, let's see if we have... Okay, yeah, looks like we're back in. Uh, like I said, lots of thunder and lightning outside of my door right now. And so I don't know if you guys can hear it, probably not. But uh, we're going to just hope and pray that this connection keeps uh, keeps going. If it doesn't, don't worry, I'll upload a, uh, a complete version of this show afterwards, which I had to do a couple of weeks ago as well. All right, I think it's time. Let's do it, man. Uh, how you been? Good. All right. <laughs> uh, so sore. I, I don't want to complain. I sound like such a complainer. You're an old man. My body's just sore, man. I don't recover fast. Just we've been digging up old old stuff in the yard where they people had like 
rocks, then fabric, then other rocks. And it's all gnarly, uh, uh, different root systems of different things. And, you know, it's yeah. all good, man. Little by little. I am sore as well, but for completely different reasons. All right. That's because um, you're rolling. Yeah, it is. And uh, I, my ear hurts really bad. Why so, your ear? Well, have you ever seen guys with cauliflower ear? You know what that looks like? It sounds painful. <laughs> your ears, like in here, swell up huge. And they do that because you're... Your face just gets rubbed against the mat constantly. Like your ear constantly gets rubbed against the mat. So it like fills up. But here's the worst part is that if you're new to the sport and you get cauliflower ear, basically it's the worst because then everybody thinks that you're really good, even though you're not. And then they go really hard. And so you just get murdered every single day. So (laughs) it's not what you want anyway. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's move into it. I think that. Uh, I by the way, I think that Rob has to now shave the sides of his head and leave the mullet because we hit eight thousand subscribers, and I vote for that. I, I vote for for full mullet. No, that that's not going to happen. Anything I do has to has to uh, go through the go through the wife uh, <laughs> approval. <laughs> Somebody in the in the chat room says, wear ear protection, man. Then I look like one of those guys. What's worse, to look like one of those guys on the mat? <laughs> like your mom has to hold your hand on in the mat? Or, no, I'm playing. Anyway, okay. Um, it's a good idea. I, I'm not putting it down. My wife said the same thing, so. All right. Um, let's move to our notes. We just got this. Our good friend, Stephen Loretti, uh, who we met face-to-face, finally, in New Jersey, when we were there last year, uh, he writes in on a regular and, uh, it's his emails are always an, uh, a, a breath of fresh air to get and his phone calls even more so. So if you're listening, Stephen, thank you so much for writing us again. This is what he says. He says original languages of the new Testament has come up recently in some Messiah matters episodes and made me painfully aware of some gaps in my own knowledge of church history and our Bibles. I think that actually what, uh, now, as I read this, I think people realize, uh, I th- I think that I take a, a little bit different view than many people, especially in the Torah movement. I think that I follow scholarship a little bit more than uh, a lot of people might. I, I think a lot of people are unaware of the scholarship that has gone into this. And so I actually don't think this is a, a gap in, in Stephen's uh, knowledge of the Bible or the history. I think it's, I think it's a common misunderstanding. And, and uh, that should, I think that happens a lot. If, if we don't dive into certain areas of scholarship, we don't know what the, what the current uh, uh, evidence is one way or the other. Anyway, he says, I am so embarrassed to ask the following questions. And these are actually really good questions. So uh, don't, uh, don't feel embarrassed at all. He's got five questions. We'll go through them, uh, each one. Number one, did Yeshua speak Greek? The answer is yes. We know this for a fact. Rob has written a wonderful article, and if uh, Mike is in the chat room, I'm sure he will post it in a few seconds. Uh, It is called something about Nicodemus. What's it called, Rob? Do you remember? (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know the I don't remember the name of the article, but you that's talk. The one. I'll, you talk. I'll look it up and I'll post it in the chat room if Mike doesn't beat me. It's to on. It. it just looks at John chapter three. Right. Now this um, is not the only place that we a conversation with Nicodemus. Right, and this is not the only time. Uh, that we know for a fact that Yeshua is in, uh, is speaking Greek, but this is one of them. Uh, the article in question is called, Did Yeshua Converse with Nicodemus in Greek? Pretty easy title there. I will uh, post it in the chat room, and I will try to remember to post it in, our, um, in the description of this video on YouTube and our podcast description as well. Here it is for everybody. There you go. Um, Basically, the gist of this article, which this article really was kind of revolutionary for me. It really had me um, dive into this topic. Wow, that's that's cool. I I revolutionized your thinking on that. You did, actually. Basically, uh, there is a... uh, there's a word, and Rob, why don't you describe this? So uh, Yeshua comes out and says, unless you are born from above, and Nicodemus understands this differently, he thinks he, that Yeshua says, unless you are born again. And so why? how is it that we know that, that uh, Nicodemus is in uh, Yeshua? By oh, the yeah, way, the word, there's a Greek word, anothen, unless you are born, maybe people know that passage, you know, it's a famous conversation. It's only in the gospel of John uh, in terms of the account uh, for us. Uh, And it's uh, depending on your translation, you might say, Oh, born from above or born again. It's one of those places where we get this phrase, unless you're born again, or unless you're born from above. And um, in, in the Greek there, there's a word, which actually has two meanings. It can mean, again, like a second time, or from above. It can mean both those things. And uh, so none of the, you can't express that in Hebrew. You can't, the word play doesn't work in Hebrew. It doesn't work in Aramaic. So there's one example where people who are, that's usually one thing, like, the, oh, we found the lost Hebrew gospels, for example, <laughs> or, the, or the lost Aramaic gospels. Um, right. This uh, there's no way to communicate this word play except in Greek. So you can't, commu- it doesn't work in Aramaic. It doesn't work in Hebrew. Um, and it's crucial for the, for the account because Nicodemus misunderstands. Right? He right. takes it the one way. Anyway, I try to go, I, I can't be born again from my mother's womb. He takes it as again. Um, and so I try to just kind of carefully go through that and, and, uh, lay out the, all the little stepping stones, you know, to get a good sense of what's going on there with the Greek. Yeah. Because, because of this, uh, because of this article, I went down the, uh, the rabbit hole of, of Greek and Greek inscriptions and, uh, versus Aramaic and, or Hebrew, um, there are places where obviously the, it, it seems, according to the evidence, the closer you get to the temple, okay, so in Jerusalem and the closer you get to the temple, the more Aramaic and or Hebrew is actually being spoken, right? Um, however, it, it quickly changes, right? And even within Jerusalem, we see uh, Hebrew, Hebrews, I should say, Hebrews uh, like tombstones with Greek inscriptions instead of Hebrew inscriptions. And so all of this points to 
um, the idea and the fact that, uh, and Rob points this out in his article, the fact that Nicodemus is called the teacher of Israel, right? And so we would expect the teacher of Israel and this up-and-coming quote-unquote rabbi Yeshua, right? He's our rabbi, so this up-and-coming rabbi Yeshua, we would expect them to be speaking in what? Probably Hebrew or Aramaic, but they're not. They're speaking in Greek. So this, to me, really kind of opened my eyes to the notion that that Greek was uh, spoken a lot more uh, than we give credit for. You know, this touches, if, if I may, just one additional footnote. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Remember last week we were talking about the Sanhedrin, like, and there was a Joe Good quote of the Sanhedrin. Um, one of the things that we just recognize is there's a lot of important Jewish words like Sanhedrin, synagogue, right? These are Greek terms. These are not Hebrew terms. They're not Aramaic, but they are crucial to Jewish culture, right? If you're going to talk about first century Jewish culture, you're going to talk up, you're going to hear words like Sanhedrin and synagogue, right? Uh, and so, and and for scholars who uh, have you know really drilled down on this within the rabbinic corpus, that is like the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrashim. I think uh, one estimate was over three thousand Greek and Latin loan words pepper right. all of the rabbinic literature. Now that's literature post destruction, but uh, and and so the. On the literary front, we see that, like in the in the text. But also, if you look at some of the, uh, like you were talking about different inscriptions, if you look at tombstone inscriptions uh, from the around Jerusalem, uh, first second century, but also up in Galilee, like the rabbinic uh, tombstones, often have Greek uh, both. Like it'll it'll give the name in both. Like there's a. a one of the Gamaliel's tomb says uh, Rabbi, whatever, Gamaliel, and it spells it in Hebrew letters, and then it spells it again in Greek letters. So we know that it it, it didn't have that uh, negative sense, like, oh, Greek. Like, like the idea of the rabbis and, and Judaism ultimately rejecting the Septuagint, rejecting Greek language, didn't happen until really post Talmudic times, really. I mean, right. not so sometimes people think, oh, Greek is bad. That's why they don't like the idea of the apostles writing the gospels in Greek or, oh, you know, Paul probably wrote Romans in, in uh, Latin. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, idiotic stuff like that. Um, and, and, and he probably wrote, uh, you know, People making up stuff like this. It's like, you know, that's t they're mixed up, right? It's, you, we got to go back and and forget all the later polemic about languages. Because it's true, you know, in the later rabbinic period, you know, several hundred years after destruction of the temple, you have the, like the story like, oh, you know, the day one of the midrashes says, uh, the day that the Torah was translated into Greek was worse than the golden calf. Right. Right. And and so all of a sudden there's this sense of Greek bad. Um, one one a footnote on a footnote <laughs> in our Aramaic class, sometimes uh, in the, at the end of the year, we read some different medieval rabbinic uh, poetry in Aramaic. 
And uh, there's stuff that was found in the Cairo Geniza that uses the word kurios for the Lord. It, so it's an Aramaic text, but it has the word kurios spelled in Aramaic letters, but it's just using the Greek word Lord to talk so, about God. So this so, is... So uh, St- Stephen's next comments are actually going to help us hash this out even more. Uh, so let, let's look at a couple of these, and you can you can c- continue on with what you're saying. But I, sure. I think that we can incorporate these into what you're saying right now. Um, uh, Stephen's second question is, when Jews went into their, either the, the synagogue or the temple, what language was spoken during sacrifices or prayers or teachings and readings? This is an interesting question because we know that Torah scrolls were, uh, were translated into Greek. In other words, there's Greek Torah scrolls that we've found, one at Qumran specifically. Um, and so uh, was the Torah only being recited in Hebrew? I don't think that we know that for sure. However, it is widely believed that in the, uh, in the temple and in synagogues, it was the, the Hebrew was uh, used. And uh, one of the reasons we know this is because it's said that, that it needs to be translated for the layperson. In other words, the lay Jew, the the average farmer uh, that that was you know out in the fields on the normal day would come into the synagogue, and guess what? He didn't know what in the world was being said. They had to translate it into Greek for him, and that once again shows us how um, underutilized the language of Aramaic and Hebrew was. It, to be completely honest with everyone, I think the real question should be, and we know we know the answer is in the affirmative, but I don't think the answer should, the question should be did did Yeshua speak Greek? I think the question should be did Yeshua speak Aramaic and Hebrew? Because he's not from an area. It seems like, especially in Nazareth, Greek was the lingua franca there. Now there are there were a couple of inscriptions found with Hebrew on. On uh, on the inscriptions in Nazareth, but I think that Greek was essentially what the people were speaking. I don't think that Hebrew and Aramaic was the was the norm, even for the Jews. Rob, anything on that? Well, I think I think Yeshua, I think he could do you know Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. I just I completely agree. He, I, he I, could do I, all I completely of them, yeah. agree, and I think I, the I, same thing with Paul. Um, and so. You know, it's, it's, these are questions that, you know, I mean, we do have, for example, preserved in Greek. This is another thing that is, that doesn't work in, uh, in the, like the Aramaic gospel conspiracies, but we have places where it records, Yeshua says these words, right. And it records it in Aramaic. Like, sure. And so we could ask that this is a question, a real pointed question. Why do the synoptics agree that Yeshua cited Psalm 22, verse one, from the cross in Aramaic and not in Hebrew? That's a, I think that's a good question. I have my own thoughts about that, why he used Aramaic. Uh, and I think it, it's it, oh, because, do tell. I mean, don't leave but, us hanging on that. Well, I think that he, or he, is there a fourth forthcoming article? Is that what's going on? No. Well, well, I mean, it's just speculation. But if if you look at Hebrew, became a language of control and a language of um, exclusion. Hmm. It's still the language of the Tanakh, and the scribes did their job. But you had 
it's a very complex social situation. Um, and so Yeshua cited in the language of Aramaic, which was this, the side of, of um, to kind of make a statement that God's word is not, and it, it's, it's very similar to what we have at uh, Pentecost with the people hearing praises of God in their own language, not in Hebrew, right? The miracle of Shavuot, was not that everybody understood Hebrew. Like magically, a person who never knew Hebrew all of a sudden could hear Hebrew and understand. That's not the miracle. The miracle is that God's word is communicatable in the languages of the world. Right. And that's, but that's not the trajectory that the later rabbinic takes. Now, it's true that the rabbinic texts are full of Greek and Latin loanwords and even Persian especially like in the Babylonian Talmud. But the idea is over, over time, the trajectory is to insulate right. the in, insulation of Jewish languages from the languages of the world and, and to try to make a holiness associated with language, um, which we don't have that. There, there is no claim of holy language in the Tanakh or in the apostolic writings. right. This yeah, that's an important point. That's an important idea. point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the the idea of a holy language emerges in a, in the sectarianism in the the Jewish world of the Essenes, and they didn't last. You know, they didn't survive. You know, we we just know we look back and it's like, oh, there's the holy language, um, and then people take that idea and project it back. Oh, well, he's going to create a pure speech. And they think that that's, oh, everybody's going to be speaking Hebrew. But the language itself is not pure. Pure language comes from a new heart. Right. Pure speech comes from a, a new creation heart. That's where pure speech comes from, not from the specific language of, of the world. Okay, let's let's go to question three. In the Gospels, when Yeshua taught the people or his disciples, what language did he speak? I, I this is speculation. We, we can't give a definitive answer on that. However, it is my I lean towards the idea that he speaks Greek on the regular, and I do, and I lean that way because I think the layperson and the people that uh, that around even the Jews around Israel were not. Uh, well versed in Hebrew Aramaic, so he's speaking in the lingua franca of the time. In my opinion, uh, once again, I can't be dogmatic about that, but I think Greek is probably what he's speaking. And this leads to to Stephen's. Uh, did you want to? Did you want to weigh in on? Yeah. That? Well, I mean, just one last point is we have to realize that Greek, you know, the the Torah was probably translated into Greek around 250 BC, and that it. The, the translation we learn about in like the letter of Aristeas was not the first Greek a, a translation. There were other circulating translations. So, and we already have at Qumran, not only Greek fragments, but Aramaic Targums. So we know that the Jewish communities throughout the Mediterranean were wrestling with this issue of language. They knew the Torah was given in Hebrew, but they knew that they, a, they didn't all have access to it. You had you had fragmentation of scribal communities. So the Essenes had their own scribes separate from the temple scribes. So you had there, there was confusion, and and then you had 
circulation in Aramaic, circulation in Greek, translations. And, uh, you know, this one great study on this is looking at Paul's citations of the Torah and of the prophets. And you look at, uh, compare, and this is one thing that Tim Haig does, your, your father, in his uh, commentaries as kind of his regular method is whenever Paul or whenever, even in the gospels, there's a citation, he pulls it up. He says, well, let's look at the, the Septuagint reading and compare. And there are so many times where Paul cites, cites scripture where his, where his Greek text is really tracks tightly with, with how we read the Hebrew and is different than the Septuagint. So we have to say, well, what's Paul is, what did Paul do? Paul's writing Romans, let's say, and he wants to quote the book of Exodus. So is what's Paul going to do? Is he going to stop writing, go to his bookshelf and pull out a, you know, a, a huge scroll or you're right. No, no. So uh, these are real good uh, areas for study for people who want to, but, but the thing is they take, you got to have some skill set, right? You got to have some competence in these languages and you have to know how to approach all the manuscript traditions, all the variants. You have to have an understanding of history. There's, there's a lot to it. Uh, so but the, the, it was a complex issue already in the first century. So uh, ING Green says not to, uh, well, he puts uh, th this question forward. He says, if that's the case, why was the Roman soldier shocked Paul spoke Greek? Not to argue, but if it was common for everyone, wouldn't the soldier not have been curious when he said, you speak Greek to Paul? And I think that Lee uh, Lee Kessler in the chat room, uh, response, his response is, is accurate. He says, didn't, didn't he think Paul was Egyptian? Yeah, he thinks that he was the Egyptian... Uh, uh, um, uh, basically, the 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 guy who rises up against Rome, right, and he gets put out into the into the desert, and uh, the Roman soldier believes, and uh, Lee cites uh, Acts twenty one thirty eight, um, and the Roman soldier believes that he is this uh, military leader who has um, who has now come back, right. But beyond that, there's there's other ways that we we would be able to uh, see this as well. For instance, if Paul was raised in Jerusalem and uh, was raised under the feet of Gamaliel, then <clears throat> then it would um, possibly be that they were uh, speaking Hebrew and or Aramaic uh, in those schools. I think that that's unlikely. But uh, also, we have a lot of people coming from I think from outside of Israel to the temple. So the idea that anyone would speak Greek, uh, outside of the land of Israel, Egyptians, Ethiopians, things like that, that might be a little bit more, uh, shocking. Uh, so, but I, I think Lee's point is, uh, is, is more, uh, accurate. He thinks that he's the Egyptian. And well, so Greek, Greek was spoke, remember, so Alexander the great, right. In the fourth century, basically conquered the near East, right. All the way to past Afghanistan, right, all the way to the Indus River, basically to India and back through Persia to Egypt. And the idea was to spread Greek culture. And that's why you have like Buddhist statues that look like Greek statues, right? I mean, because there's Greek culture all, all throughout. And so what you have is different local responses to that Greek culture. And to some, some communities are going to try to retain their 
whatever their local dialect was, whatever their language was, but they can't help in order to survive in this new world. They had to adopt some sort of Greek language and ideas and concepts. And so what you see is depending on where you drop your finger on the map, you're going to have a different mix of Greek. And, but it's, but it's clear that by the first century, you know, before Yeshua's birth, Greek had infiltrated the Jewish world. I mean, Greek was, there was a lot of, text, the, the whole Tanakh, plus all the additional materials that you find in the Apocrypha, etc. right? The books, the major books of the Jewish kings, which is the Maccabees, were, now they say second Maccabees was uh, possibly translated from a different Hebrew text, and that's possible, but, but it doesn't survive. What, what we have is which was that which was made for the masses, or the larger, broader distribution, and that's all in Greek. And uh, anyway, um, well, the the other thing that we need to consider is possibly the fact that that uh, Paul's Greek was perfect. In other words, that it, that he didn't have an accent, and especially if this Roman uh, officer thought that uh, he was an out of towner, the notion that he would speak perfect Greek would have been shocking. I mean, we could liken this to you know any foreigner coming in w- without an accent. Which I've seen, right? When I uh, I have a lot of friends from Sweden, um, there there are s- several uh, Swedes that I know who speak English without an accent, almost at all. And uh, I asked, "How is it that you speak English so well?" And they said, "We learned it since we were six. We've been speaking English since we were six. So there's you know there's almost no accent. So it could could be something like that as well." Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. There's people there's people today that speak. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's true. They they grow up trilingual or more than that. So uh, AAC says, "I'm trying to follow this." So, why do you think he was that Egyptian? No, I don't think he was that Egyptian. Why did the general think he was that Egyptian? That's what the text says. I, I and and actually, uh, actually, the uh, the correct answer to this should be uh, my my axe commentary will be coming out in, uh, in about a month. And uh, I write all about this, so you nice. can uh, you can uh, uh, pick it up. Uh, it'll probably be available on pronomian.com. Okay, um, let's go back to Stephen's uh, questions here. Uh, number four essentially has been answered then, because he says if the answer to all of the above is Hebrew or Aramaic, which we don't believe it is, then when how when slash how and why did all that body of scripture get translated into Greek? So once again, if the lingua franca of the time was Greek, then obviously they would want to write in Greek, especially if it's going out to the nations. So then on to Stephen's fifth question, he says, when the apostles first started their ministries locally before the gospel started spreading, were those Greek-speaking congregations, weren't they mainly at first Jews that believed in Yeshua? Why would they be speaking or reading Greek? I think we've already answered that. Uh, I think that the, the main language of the time was in fact Greek. I thank you very much, Stephen, for your uh, comments and your and your questions here. Uh, and I hope that that uh, they've actually helped other people at least understand. Even if you disagree with us, that's totally fine. Um, but uh, at least understand where we're coming from and why we come from that position. Well, and, and, and and if I may think about just this is a, this is kind of a sloppy example, but think about American Christianity. Okay, American Christianity probably speak what language? English. They're probably reading Bibles in English. The sermons are in English. Okay. Now, how many of American, just you say American evangelicals, 
how many of those people know that the Bible really isn't in English? Right. Half? Like, seriously, like, let's, I, I mean, I really don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe people think it was in English, but let's just, let's just say they hey, all know. Hey, 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 Paul. Hey, hey, Rob, if, if the King James Version was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, right? <laughs> I love that. But the idea is so, so, but if, how many, how many American evangelicals know that, that they, they hear, they read the Bible in English, they hear it preached in English, they think about it in English, but they know that it's really in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Okay, how many people have that knowledge? So they they know it's in a different language, but so they know that their their world of the Bible in their hearts and minds is really a, mediated through translators. Okay, how many people really that really sinks in? And then how many of those people actually have started to learn the languages of Scripture? And how right. many people have? And then why not? Like why isn't it the case that everybody who loves Yeshua knows the Bible's languages? Because it takes hard work, resources, investment, and it's it's tough when you're just trying to survive in the world, right? You're just trying to, you know, uh, pay your bills, you take care of your family, right? It It's tough. Okay, so some of those same principles are true in the first century. You know, you, the, the first believers, not all were wealthy or highborn or noble, like Paul says in Corinthians. Right, who had access to to education? You know, you probably grew up speaking the language in your village or town, right? You not not all ancient uh, first century Jews were world travelers like Paul. Right. Like Paul talks about going as far as Arabia to to Damascus, all the way to through the islands and through the Greek, you know, the, Anatolia or Asia. Uh, and in Rome, he wants to go to Spain, right? So Paul's like, he's been around, um, but that's that's rare, right? Most people lived and died within what a couple mile radius, yeah. and and they were exposed to very limited. Uh, they didn't have good internet access all the time. <laughs> no, so we got to we got their real, cell phone gotta, coverage was really bad back then. I think. I think what we need to do is is try to to appreciate the the constraints that each individual believer and the and the believing communities well not even just communities in general the constraints that people uh, dealt with in life and realize they're very different than I mean we're highly constrained but but very different ways they were constrained and so. Um, the issue of what language they were speaking is going to be a function of those larger constraints. Their access to the word of God um, is going to be a function of, of those constraints. Okay. I want to uh, move on here, but before we do, let me just say this. If you completely disagree with us and want to tell us why you can do so by uh, giving us a call 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also Shoot us an email, chegg at torresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. A lot of you people have been subscribing, and we really appreciate that. If you are not subscribed, now is the time. 
go ahead and click that subscribe button. It really does help us. We are appreciative of all of our subscribers. We are now over 8,000 subscribers, believe it or not, which means that uh, we should do some kind of uh, celebratory 8,000 subscriber video. I don't know what we're going to do. We'll figure it I out. I thought it was 10,000. We'll, uh, well, we're going to, well, hey, patience. We'll get there, okay? Um, okay, let's move on. Corey, a student at Torah Resource Institute, writes in, and he says this, he says, hey, Caleb, can you discuss this on Messiah Matters? My question is, should Messianic communities focus on localizing if the congregants are spread out? What I mean by that is, I've scarcely have, I scarcely have heard of, of Messianic Torah observant communities where most members have to drive over an hour to get to the congregation, sometimes for members that could be an hour in the opposite direction from one another. Should there be a push to move closer to one another? And is this necessary to do if we want to see the next generation continue in the path of Torah observant faith in Yeshua? This is an interesting, I think it's a really good question. Um, and I, it's a little bit interesting for me to try to answer this because um, I, I don't think that this is specific to Messianic congregations or Torah observant congregations. Now I know that Corey has framed it in the idea of Torah observance, but I believe that if you have a good church with solid theology um, and there's nothing else around, that that is a good option for you. I also believe that uh, if, I also believe that if you don't have any community, you should move to be able to be a part of a community. So uh, the church that I currently attend, we have people drive some some up to 45 minutes to an hour just to be at this church. And uh, so I, I, and that's not to say that there aren't great churches around our, our area. In fact, we're very blessed to have some uh, really, especially this is shocking because of the area that we live in. The area that we live in is, is one of the most liberal areas in the entire nation. And yet we have some very, very solid conservative um, uh, Bible-believing churches in our area. And so to have people drive up to an hour just to come to this church, is uh, it shows the, the want and the need for good community. So the question that Corey asks is, what about Torah-observant communities? If you have a, a, a Torah-observant community that is theologically sound, that is the unicorn that uh, that is is rarely seen in the in the world today. So if you have a if you find a unicorn like that, uh, then by all means, I don't think it's out out of the question. In fact, I I think that I've heard a lot of people um, travel up to two hours each way to get to a a solid uh, Torah observant community. Um, so. I, the question really is, are you willing to travel or not? If you're not willing to travel, then you need to find a, something, uh, some community, whether it's a Christian church or a Messianic community in your area that you can fellowship at. And if, and if that isn't an option, then yes, I think people need to move. We have to be in community in some way, shape, or form. We have to be in a Bible-believing community. Um, I'm actually writing on a Torah perspective of this right now in terms of how uh, we are to, well, it really comes from slavery and punishment is where my article is coming from, but really the the idea of, of what it means to be cut off and, and things like that. So I think that a Bible-believing community is a must. I, I, I don't think that the Bible in any way thinks of uh, 
people in covenant relationship with God being outside of a community. I don't think that that's, that's not within the biblical understanding. So if you have to move to be a part of a community, then yes, otherwise you need to be willing to travel. Rob? Yeah, that's, I, it, it, it's a real great question because there is like one of the questions that come to me is livelihood. Like what kind, you know, Paul talks about how he was a tent maker, you know, some say, oh, he made talits. You know, I've heard people say that's what the tent was, um, which I think it sounds silly. I don't think that that's probably it, but I think it's literally tents. Um, uh, but there are certain types of skills that a person could move and like work remotely now using the internet or, um, you know, but some, not, not every job allows somebody to move just to sure pick up and move their family. And so um, in order for someone to, to move, are they able to going to, you know, can they move and continue to take care of their family? Like that's an important uh, point. Um, and then, um, and then the, the, come down to the community. Like, who are you moving? You know, we knew, uh, remember there were a bunch of people that moved to, uh, oh, what was the place? The guy went to jail. Oh, Staley. Yeah. There were people from Washington state that moved. What was yeah. the name of their prepare for truth or something like that? Passion for truth. Yeah. Who moved to be part of like, there's like this, Oh, we're going to move. Right. So be careful. Like if you feel like you, if you're really like, because those people moved and then I don't know what happened. I mean, um, big disappointment. Right. Um, so, and I would have, if people had told me, Oh, we're moving there because of this guy, I would have advised them not to, you know, I, and so I would say, okay, I, it's good that you have a desire to live near other believers. That is a good thing. But this is not the guy to go move to be close to, right? I mean, I would also say that. Well, it's, I think there's another element to this and one that I think a lot of people don't understand a lot of the time. That is oftentimes when I've seen people move cross country or even move states or whatever to be close to a community, 99% of the time, the community is not what they thought it was. In other words, you see a community online, maybe you see some teachings and whatnot, and you get this idea in your head about what that community is like. And, and you have an idea of, oh, these people are probably together all the time. They do everything together. There's, or, you know. It's like he heaven on earth. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's this, uh, there's this notion in people's head of what, uh, of what, that community is like they pick up, they move across the country or they move cross state or whatever it may be. And they get there and it's not what they thought. It's not what they, you know, their reality sets in the community. It, actually, they see what the community is actually like. It's like moving into a, it's like moving into a house, right? You move into a house with a family the family looks great on the outside when you see them outside of the uh, outside of the 
the home. They they look all put together and everything. But then you then you move into the home and you're renting a room or whatever, and you see that dad has a temper or you know they're slobs or whatever. Like the facade comes off, right? And a lot of the time, I think that that's how it is with communities, and that's the truth with uh, with all sorts of communities. It's not right. Ju- so so does the desire to move? <clears throat> Is it really an avoidance of being where you are? That's a great question. Because if you're avoiding where dealing with the reality of where you are and you think that, you know, you can just avoid difficult stuff and go somewhere where you're not going to have difficult stuff. You're just going to, that's, that is not a reason to move. Well, and Lewis says, I believe that believers should go to the local assembly where God can use them. Yeah. This is, this is also a good point. I think a lot of the time people want, people think that the community is for me, 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 but possibly it's possible that you are supposed to be part of that community so that you can help build people up. That can be really, really, really difficult. If, if the community is not fully on board with your theology and um, we've talked numerous times about the fact that, uh, that the Torah movement has, has put a real low value on community. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know that the internet was down for uh, a good 45 seconds. I'm watching it, and I apologize for that. Um, I'll probably re-upload this video afterwards. Let's move on. Um, so, you want to you look at the uh, Testament of Job? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. There was an email we got several weeks back, and I, when Caleb and I were talking on Monday, I said, hey, do you have that question? Do you, did you find it? Yeah. I got it. Okay, cool. Let let's, me open up. Uh, let me just open up and see if I have <clears throat> the actual. Um, I don't know if I do or not. If I have the actual uh, uh, pics that he sent. He sent pictures of the actual. Um, sorry, I'm trying to look this up and talk at the same time. He, he sent pictures. I think of the, the question they had are. to do. Oops. It's, I think it's the question had to do here goes. speaking in tongues. Yeah, he says, I am Solomon, a big fan of Torah Resource and Messiah Matters. I listened to your broadcast on speaking in tongues, show 75. That was a while ago. So nice. we're talking about... Which is now available on uh, YouTube again. Yeah, you can go watch it on YouTube. You uh, and it. It's always he says, been up there, but now I think it's available to find. Yeah. He says, and I share your views on the topic. Okay. I believe that much mm-hmm. of what is going on in churches in the name of speaking in tongues is man-made. Absolutely. But recently I came across the Testament of Job, which seems to suggest the possibility of God's people speaking supernatural languages. In chapter 11, there's an account that Job's daughters sang hymns in the dialects of angels and archons and cherubim. The Greek text and the English translation of the account are attached herein for reference. I would like to know your analysis of this account in relation to speaking in tongues. Also, what's your take on the tongues of angels in 1 Corinthians 13.1? Okay, this is a good question. First of all, I see, let me make an analogy here. I see the Testament of Job as I see the Da Vinci Code. I thought you were going to say Book of Mormon, (laughs) but that's good. Okay. No, the Da Vinci Code. You know, Mm -hmm. I had somebody call me when the Da Vinci Code came out. They called me and they said, well... What do we do if, if, you know, Yeshua was married? And I said, well, it was a book, uh, a fictional book, and it was a movie, um, and it had no you're, bearing you're on not reality. Kidding. No, someone, that was, someone, somebody actually called me and asked me that. They were, they were very upset. They were distraught about the Da Vinci Code because people, people treated it as if it was true. 
uh, even though it was purely fiction. And here's the thing is that the same. I made is, millions. Okay. This oh, was yeah. a lesson to like people scamming the Bible, right? Scamming people on the Bible. Good. Anyway, the, sorry, the, go. the, the point is, is that the Testament of Job is just as much fiction to me as the Da Vinci Code. So I don't, you know, this has yeah, no it's bearing. For, it's Da Vinci Code for Greeks, non-believing Greek speaking Jews in probably the first, second century. Right. And it has no bearing, no bearing whatsoever on. You got the names. Truth. It gives like the names for Job's daughters. He, he, if right. you go and read it, I don't know if it's available online anywhere where you could find a trend, maybe Charles translation from a hundred years ago, but you can get the James Charlesworth um, pseudepigrapha two volume set for on sale for like 20 bucks, probably. And you can read it in there with good intro to just talk about its theology and everything. But yeah, you got Job's daughter's names. And then there's a time where he goes to some treasure chest and he grabs these three cords, magical cords, and he gives them to his daughters. And then they, they're like transformed. And it says that they're an, like a protective amulet for them. They're never going to get sick. And that um, then they start speaking like the, the dialect of angels and the dialect of the archons and all this stuff. And it's just like, it's like, okay. So you have like Jewish magic, you have amulets, you have this idea of speaking in the, the dialect of the archons, you know, which is interesting. What does that mean? And the point is it's, it's not actually pointing to reality. So we don't want to read it like Caleb's saying. It's like the Da Vinci Code. You don't want to read the Da Vinci Code and go, oh, oh, I just learned something that the Bible withheld from me, you know, that Jesus was married, you know, and what? where are his kids today? Like, can I trace his lineage? Um, so we don't want to project the world of the Testament of Job as if it's describing real things. Right. It is supposed to be like a Harry Potter. Like, it's supposed to be like... A, uh, it, you know, but Harry Potter, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's like Christian or, or Jewish fantasy text, um, and so I don't believe that the speaking in the dialect of the Archons is uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It's supposed to create a sense of mystery and awe and ooh for the reader. It's supposed to be something that the reader that is, is like a mystery to the reader so that they're going to be intrigued and want more. Yeah. So uh, the, the second part of this question has to do with first uh, Corinthians 13 one. I, I think that this, this is taking uh, is so often taken so far out of context. What is he talking about? He's so first of all, Paul here, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, Am I a noisy gong or a, or a clanging cymbal? He's talking about love. He's not trying to talk about some mystical language that the angels have. What he's what he's saying is is that if he t- speaks in the in the I think that the tongue of men and angels is the same thing. However, I think that in the first century it could be uh, the idea that the angels, uh, you know their speech was elevated because they were in the heavenly realm or whatever. And so I think that he's using this as like the, the idea of, look, it, it doesn't matter how great you think something is. If you think that, you know, if I'm, you can put it into society as well. If I'm a peasant or I'm a king, uh, what, what does it matter if I'm not, you know, if I don't have love? So he's, he's giving these things that are like in society contrast. One is great. One is, 
you know, not as great. Is Paul here making a theological point that the angels speak in a different language? No, that's not at all what he's talking about. And uh, I think that this has actually been used to say, "Oh, look, there's a, a an angelic language," and and now right, it I must can... be Hebrew or something. Yeah, or it must be. And gibberish. here's the thing: it's tongues. So it's tongues of men and of angels. So the tongues is plural. You'd have to say that there are more than one tongue of angels. It's not just a tongue of angels. It's tongues of angels. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that he's saying that the, uh, that uh, I think he's making a point and I think that that point is, is evident in the text itself that he's talking about love. He is not in any way attempting to put forward that there is a secret language between uh, you and God that you can, if you put yourself in a, some kind of a state, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's going to enter you and you're going to speak in gibberish. That's just not the case. It's, it's not supported by the text. And yeah. so, uh, the, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that the idea of, I mean, I've always thought that the idea of strange fire, that the, uh, oftentimes, oftentimes in the scriptures, Israel believes that it's giving pure, uh, worship to God and God is disgusted by it. And yet we think that because it feels good, um, or it feels right that God is pleased by it. The scripture tells us how to worship. The, the scriptures tell us uh, how to relate to God, and uh, speaking gibberish is not part of it. Right. Fear of God's holiness, right? I mean, Native and Avihu, they thought, oh, what, you know, we'll just bring, what is that, Leviticus 10? Oh, we'll just bring in this fire just because, you know, they were, they, uh, were feeling a little Pentecostal maybe. I don't know. Oh no! We are going to get you emails can, on this one. <laughs> you cannot and you cannot encroach on the holiness of God. The, uh, I'm going to tell no you, no trial. You don't. You don't. There's no trial. There's no inquiry. The last time we we said things uh, in in this vein, uh, I got uh, people sent me like videos and pictures and all sorts of stuff. I got multiple people sent me stuff about, uh, you know, how they had, had experienced the Holy Spirit in this way, that way, or whatever. And uh, I have no doubt that people experience stuff. And I have no doubt that it feels great. But that doesn't mean it's of God. And I think that that is a cold, harsh reality that so many believers don't want to face. They, they want to believe that the great experience that they had where they never felt closer to God to say that that was that, that that was real, but it wasn't of God, is absolutely contrary to their to their walk with God. To them, it has to be God because it felt so good. I mean, this this is the reason that we have Mormonism is because it feels so good. And I can tell you that Mormonism is not of God because it doesn't line up with Scripture. If your personal feelings and your experiential feelings do not line up with the Scriptures. We have to say it's not of God. And that's, that's a reality that so many people, especially within the Torah movement, because the Torah movement comes out of the Pentecostal movement, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that so many people don't want to, it's a pill that so many people don't want to swallow. Their, their feelings have to, have to trump the, you know, the reality of what the scriptures say. And to me, that's really, really sad. Uh, Gary says you should study on first Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as a book within a book. 
Yeah, okay. That's an interesting idea. All right, do we want to uh, touch on anything else or are we done for the day? Uh, we do have one more thing in our notes, but I don't know if we have the time to touch on it. I suppose we could try. Just some guy wrote in and asks a question about Just Matthew some 20. guy wasn't, that's actually what he calls himself, right? Yes. Okay, <laughs> just to be clear. That's like when I when I was young, I was I I went to a I went to a concert and they and the people I was with said, "Come on, we got to go to this stage because uh, that that one guy's playing." I said, "What what guy? That one guy." I said, "Who's that one guy?" They said, that's, it's like, that's who's the, on first? That's what the name are you of the asking act. Me for? That, yeah, that one guy. Anyway, um, so just some guy says, I hear this quoted often, but I don't hear the scripture that Jesus is pointing to quoted. What scripture says that angels are forbidden to marry? What scripture says we will not be married in the resurrection? Uh, Matthew twenty two twenty nine through 30 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, ye do err not knowing the scriptures, nor right. the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. You want to touch on that? Yeah, yeah. So the question is, the question is, how do we know angels are forbidden to marry? Well, the marriage is for male and female who are made in the image of God. We learn that from the creation account. Man shall leave his father and mother, right, and shall cling to his wife. They shall become one flesh, right? Be fruitful, multiply. This is the institution of marriage. Um, that's, that's what it is. Uh, the idea of, well, what about angels getting married reminds me back to the Da Vinci code <laughs> commenter. I'm not going to forget that. That's such a good, that's like Da Vinci code. Like, what are you talking about? You know, marriage, uh, redemption is not for angels. You can read that in, in Hebrews chapter two. He didn't come to the aid of angels came to the aid of, of the seed of Abraham. Um, there's no resurrection for angels. Um, there's no, angels don't, uh, uh, aren't fruitful and multiply. Um, yeah. So I, it's kind of a, a silly question. If you ask me, I mean, it's like, it's like a Da Vinci code. It's like trying to think with the Da Vinci code. It's like, think about the Bible through the lens of, of a Da Vinci code or something. Um, so and do you and think that that comes from? Do you think that that comes? Do you think that? Do you think that comes from like modern like studies in Enoch and stuff like that? Probably uh, the uh, the scriptures that Yeshua was talking about is the scriptures they bring to him. The Sadducees come to him and say Moses says that if a, a Israelite dies without having uh, you know his wife doesn't have any children that his brother is uh, to raise up. Uh, children in the name of his dead brother. That's, that's the scripture that, that they're talking about. And they're trying to say in the resurrection, you know, who's she going to be married to? And he's like, in the resurrection, there is no marriage. Where are you getting this idea that they're married in the, in the resurrection? So they're the ones that don't understand. They're imagining that the yeah, resurrection implanting, is somehow implanting into, like yeah. this, uh, like, you know, where you have uh, families. Now I think, back to Mormonism, I think Mormonism has a, some sort of thing where you get your own planet or something. Right. Um, I know in Islam, I think they say, you know, a guy who's a martyr gets like 70 virgins or something like that. Right. So it's, it's, it's trying to appeal to the fleshy nature 
of this world as a, a basis for trying to think about the world to come. And she was like, no, exactly. <laughs> knock that off. Eisegesis, right? He's, he's speaking against eisegesis, which is really, really interesting. Okay. I think that's going to do it for us today. Uh, I apologize for my internet going in and out. I did get a, uh, email from, uh, the John 17 project with some possible fixes for our internet problems that we have had in the past. And I might try some of them. Um, but we need you and we need you to help us uh, come up with topics for our next show. You can do that by giving us a call, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You're not going to hear from us. You're just going to leave a message. You can tell us what you agree with, disagree with, uh, topics you might want to hear us discuss, all sorts of stuff. You can also write us an email, chegg at torahresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torahresource.com. All right. Um, let me see here. I guess uh, I guess we'll just say goodbye then. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.